So I just make slides, believe it or not, that are blank. And I put a dotted line down the middle and I put my copy on the page and then in, in black and in gray, I write almost like a script what's happening on that page so that as I'm working through the manuscript and I'm working through what do I need to say with words and what will Tim help me do with pictures, I can then write with as much, um, as few words as possible, actually, because like the trick with a picture book is actually to say less with in words and to try to let the artwork do, you know, more of the heavy lifting. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome once again to a brand new episode of the Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast. I am Ron Block, and today I am so thrilled to welcome Christina Geist. Christina Geist is the New York Times bestselling author of Sorry Grownups, You Can't Go to School, Buddy's Bedtime Battery, and Buddy's New Buddy, which is just out. When she's not dreaming up new stories to share with her buddies, she works as the founder and CEO of Boombox Gifts, which we are going to dive into and talk about because they're amazing. In it, she helps people create memory boxes for their friends and family filled with their life stories and photos. She lives in New York with her husband, Willie, and their children, Lucy and George. A fun fact, her first book eclipsed Harry Potter as the number one children's book on Amazon for a hot moment. Her second book, Sorry Grownups, You Can't Go to School, debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list, and I expect the same with this new book out. Welcome to the podcast, Christina. Thank you so much, Ron. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. Yes, it's wonderful to see you always. Congratulations on the book. It is, uh, you know, I got to read an early copy and it's just, it's just like the others are. And I didn't know you were going to be making this a series, but I'm so grateful that you are. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, it's it goes way back to when my kids were young. Well, I mean, in my career, I had always been writing. I, I came up in marketing and branding and PR and always worked in creative offices where I was a writer working alongside designers in a corporate branding kind of world. And so when my kids were three in one and I left my career, which was a tough decision at the time, but the right decision for our family I was all of a sudden faced with a lot of um, creative energy that I was no longer funneling into my professional world. And, you know, as, when you're a storyteller and a writer by trade, it has to come out in some form or fashion. And all of a sudden, I sort of had the headspace where these stories started to come to me. These characters started to dance around in my mind, a brother and a sister and I wrote the stories that I sort of needed in my library. We had, you know, shelves and shelves of books when my kids were young. 
And I felt like that one bedtime book was kind of missing from my library or that that back to school, going off to school book wasn't in my library. So that was kind of where my ideas started to come together was the book that hadn't yet been written for that moment in time. And, you know, here we are. I finally, 10 years ago, said, I'm going to write all these down when my kids were three and five and they were finally going to school in the same building five days a week. And I had a few hours each day that were totally mine. I committed myself to writing those stories down. And that became a series of manuscripts um, 10 years ago. And it took a long time, uh, four years to get Buddy's Bedtime Battery published, the first story I really ever wrote. Um, Sorry, Grown Up, You Can't Go to School came along three years later. And now another three years later, here we are with Buddy's New Buddy, which is a story about friendship and about finding something you have in common and really just taking one person and one thing you have in common and starting there as a way to make connections, which I think is a message we all need at this moment in time. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. <laughs> what, um, what inspired Buddy to begin with? What was the kind of kernel that brought Buddy to life? My own kids and all the kids I knew. Um, so, you know, when you, are raising toddlers in New York City, you're just surrounded by little characters that are moving through the streets, moving through the playgrounds, zooming around on their scooters, you know, walking by holding hands with their mom or dad on the street, um, getting dropped off at preschool. So being in all those environments with my own children, um, I just started to formulate these two characters named Lady and Buddy. You know, their names are nicknames. So to me, they sort of represent every young girl, every young boy, every brother, every sister, um, and the experiences that they have moving through just their everyday life. So my stories are really kind of, um, they each uh, sit in a moment in time, whether it's the bedtime. Well, bedtime is not a moment. Bedtime <laughs> is a marathon. Sure. <laughs> so any, any parent out there or grandparent out there is like, yeah, okay, bedtime is not a moment. It's many moments um, that can sometimes take way longer than you want them to. Yes. Um, but really, I just kind of dropped these, um, these characters into these moments in everyday life with just like a slightly different twist on that routine of the way we get someone powered down for bed. And that's really based on my own experiences and my own kind of challenges. Um, just, just moving through, moving through the day with these little people. That's very true. And the great thing about it is uh, I know when my own children were little, these were the kind of books that I always was drawn to, to, to share with them because these are, like you said, these are real moments and these are things that you can, you really count on. And especially uh, as they start to grow. And I said, buddy is a baby with sleeping and then going to school and how scary that can be. But now making friends and you mentioned earlier how important that is. And it really is. And I, the book is a little bit different because it starts out, um, with Buddy not in a great place. Yeah, it's true. So in each story, in Buddy's Bedtime Battery, he's about three and a half, four years old. Um, and he's very imaginative and exuberant. And he's got his robot pajamas on and it's time to power down for bed. And the whole family kind of has to lean into this imaginary world where he's living as Robuddy, who is in fact a robot, even though he's not. And they all have to power him down 
for bed. And um, in Sorry Grown Ups, he's a little bit older. He's going off to kindergarten and, um, you know, he's moving through his day and all the grown ups are desperately trying to join him and his sister at school. And of course, the whole book is about rejecting the grown ups and pushing them away. <laughs> um, and only kids and teachers, only kids and teachers, you know, how embarrassing it is when um, even the dog Bow Wow is trying to go to school. Um, and now in Buddy's new buddy, we find him in, in my imagination, he's in, you know, maybe first, second grade. And he is a little bit older and his best buddy has just moved all the way across town. So in this story, you find him on the title page before we even get to page one. Um, and he's sad. He's looking out the window. He's seeing the moving truck across the street. And his best buddy is moving. Of course, it's only across town, but to a young child that might as well be on the other Mars. side of the world. Right. Yeah. And so, of course, his his parents are comforting him on page one and assuring him that, you know, his best buddy is only a, a, a car ride away and that they can have a play date anytime. Um, but these things don't really do the trick. They don't really make him feel better. What helps, as always, is the advice of his, uh, you know, omnipresent and ever helpful big sister lady. She's a great big sister, by the way. <laughs> She's a very helpful big sister who knows a lot about this stuff and other stuff, too. Yes, yes she does. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned about the, the friend moving away in uh, town and stuff, but it's it's in school where the friendships really matter to these kids because they really need to have somebody close to them. And I, you know, I mean, we all remember being young and having our best friend in school and how important that is. So um, can you talk about how Buddy goes about the process of getting a new friend? Yes, absolutely. So ladies, ladies suggestion is just find something you have in common, something you both share or like to do together. And so he kind of looks around for the things he has in common or had in common with his best buddy and doesn't really see that, you know, he doesn't really find anybody that's playing his favorite game. And she says, don't worry, tomorrow's a new day, which is something we say in my family. Tomorrow's a new day. Um, and tomorrow happens to be the first day of school for a new girl at school. And Mr. Teacher um, introduces her to the classroom as Allison. I love that, by the way, Mr. Teacher. Mr. Teacher, yeah. Um, so Mr. Teacher introduces her and says, class, this is a new girl who's moved here from all the way across town. Her name is Allison, and please welcome her. My older sister's name is Allison, so that's where um, her name came from. And gotcha. she says, oh, well, my real official name is Allison, but everyone just calls me Sunny. And all of a sudden... Buddy perks up and he can't believe his ears because he's never met anyone else who has a real official name and nobody calls him his name either. Everybody just calls him Buddy. Right. So all of a sudden he and Sonny have something in common and he shares his real official name with her at lunch and she promises not to tell anyone else because nobody at school knows it. Um, so right then and there, my readers are running, well, what is Buddy's real official? Exactly. That was my um, <laughs> it's, it's in my imagination, it's Bartholomew. Gotcha. Um, but when I read with my friends, we guess, you know, what do you think Buddy's real name is? Mm -hmm. um, but all of a sudden, he and Sonny have something in common. And the story sort of unfolds and progresses from there where they find more and more things that surprisingly they share and they both like and they both enjoy doing together. Um, and so really the message is just taking 
one person, one day at a time, one, one conversation at a time. And if you can find one thing you have in common with one person in that classroom or wherever it is you're going, you're on your way. And sometimes I think we make things that feel big into something very small. Even as adults, all of a sudden we can take a deep breath and kind of step into that new environment um, or the same environment that feels new because something's changed that's beyond our control. And we can kind of, you know, get ourselves out there again. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And another um, little trick that kind of is going to lead me into your process a little bit is there's an, also a scene where they aren't doing exactly the same thing. So it's not exactly what they have in common, but Mr. Teacher observes that they're similar. So that's another aspect of friendship. I think that's really important for kids to, to remember. You don't have to all like chocolate ice cream, but if you like ice cream, then, then you, that can build your friendship. And that was a great subtle aspect to put in there. Oh yeah. Thank you. That's at recess. You know, Buddy's practicing his karate and Sonny is joining the dance group and Mr. Teacher notices, huh, karate kicks and dance kicks have a lot in common. And, um, that was a fun exchange with Tim Bowers, our illustrator, who's just, um, he's wonderful. He's been a partner to me now on, this is our third book together. And he's actually from Ohio. Um, not far from you, Ron. And, um, Tim and I work remotely and, um, he sketches every page. I, um, when I write the book, I actually write it specifically to the number of pages I know I have to work with because there are a finite number of pages in a picture book. I have 40 pages, but those pages actually begin on the paste down in front where there aren't, there isn't any copy yet. So the story and the writing actually doesn't even begin till after all the title pages on page seven or eight usually. So I just make slides, believe it or not, that are blank. And I put a dotted line down the middle and I put my copy on the page and then in, in black and in gray, I write almost like a script what's happening on that page so that as I'm working through the manuscript and I'm working through what do I need to say with words And what will Tim help me do with pictures? I can then be as, um, I can write with as much, um, as few words as possible, actually, because like the trick with a picture book is actually to say less with, in words and to try to let the artwork do, um, you know, more of the heavy lifting. So you're constantly weighing, where do I actually need to use language versus where will Tim come in and actually demonstrate this on the page. And so we went back and forth on the exact pose of that karate kick and that dance kick uh, to really, you know, prove out that point, which was a lot of fun. Totally. A lot of fun. So that was, that was um, well, a couple of questions out of that. So you, um, you don't just write it and then he does the picture with it. you both collaborate all the way through. Is that Well, yeah. So I write, I I typically do write the full manuscript first and I submit that to my editor, um, Sarah at Random House. And she and I will go back and forth on that maybe here or there, you know, maybe the first time I always say to my young friends when we're doing school visits and writing workshops and library visits, it is not perfect the first time, even if you're a published author, nothing's perfect the first time. So we will go back and forth um, a little bit, and then we'll kind of lock the copy. Um, but before I do that, I have done that page planning process. So I know 
that on those 40 pages, this is what words are on that page. And this is what I think is happening on that page. And so I usually submit both of those things. Um, and then Tim gets to work and we usually don't even need to speak. If you can believe that wow. he, he just takes that plan and he sketches the entire book in pencil. And I love when I meet with my friends in schools and libraries and I get to show them what the sketches look like and how that process works because that's not perfect either. And we will make changes to the sketches and that's why they're done in pencil because we can make adjustments where we want to and where we need to, um, to make sure that the story flows really seamlessly from start to finish. And then the final step is that Tim actually paints every page. So every page in the book is a unique um, oil painting. And I have several of them hanging in my house, like a museum. Um, they're, they're beautiful. They're a little bit larger than they will end up being in the book. Um, but each page is an oil painting and he paints all of that artwork. Um, and then that gets sent to the publisher, scanned into the computer, and then the process becomes digital, but it actually starts in a very kind of old school, traditional way. That's fascinating. And, and he is so talented. Um, the illustrations are like the perfect match to your copy. It, they're just, they just go so well together. So people often go like, oh, I could write a picture book. It's just down, write a couple sentences, draw a picture, and I'll, I'll be a bestseller. It's way more than that because I think it takes an art form. You can have a novel that you can have hundreds of pages to tell a story, but in a picture book, like you said, you only get a certain number of pages. How do you, um, do you start out with a lot more and then you kind of narrow it down? Um, I actually don't. I start with, um, I let the story dance around in my mind for a while until I get it. I, I sort of nail it. I know what's going to happen without writing anything. And then I sit down and I draft it. Um, and I won't know yet about whether it works across 40 pages. I'll just draft it in word and let it unfold. And then I'll, um, I'll read it. I read it aloud. I'll read it aloud to my nieces and nephews. My own kids are now 15 and 13 and taller than me. And so, oh but they'll still sit and listen and they'll still give me feedback. But as early as I possibly can in the process, I read it aloud gotcha. because that is how a picture book should flow, right? It's mm -hmm. not meant to be read by, um, you know, you or me sitting quietly at our desk. You really want to think about the dialogue and you want to think about where you're putting words in characters' mouths and where you're using quotations. You know, I always say to my young writers, when we do little writing workshops, sometimes I meet with kids and, you know, older kids in elementary or middle school. And I say, when you take out your quotation marks and you use them, what do you put inside them? And you have to make sure that that really is that character's voice. Mm -hmm. And where do you need that versus where do you need narration versus where will the pictures do the work? So I try to really think all that through in word. And then, um, then I move to the page plan process and I sort of tighten it up. And I do that before I ever share it with um, anyone on, on the editorial side, because I sort of have to prove out that it works and that I think it flows correctly 
before I ask an editor to give their input. And, you know, yeah, I hear from people all the time who have an idea for a picture book and they always want to pitch it to me to write it. And I say, well, you write it, you know, yeah, I'm not here to to take your idea. Um, But for some reason, a lot of people feel like they don't have the expertise. And the truth is, if you've ever sat and read book after book after book after book to a young child, Mm. you certainly have the expertise. You, you know, know what this. works. You know yeah. what works. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So we do have a lot of people who are budding writers that listen. And um, can you talk a little bit about you taking your idea from your mind to writing it down to um, connecting with a publisher? Yes, certainly. So um, for me, when I'm thinking about a book that I will pitch to my publishing house, to Random House, I have to think about it from the perspective of their point of view, which is they are in the book business. Mm -hmm. So um, an idea that I might feel very passionately about and that I think is happening next in Lady and Buddy's life, and that is a perfect moment in time to capture in a book, they may disagree. And in fact, after Sorry Grown Ups made it to number four on the New York Times bestseller list, the next concept that I pitched to my editor, she did not agree on as the next story in the series. So that happens where sometimes my vision for what's going on next for these characters doesn't always sync. So you do have to think about if you, if your goal is to be published and, you know, I'll, I'll tell people, well, by whom, you know, you don't always have, you can self publish. You can publish for your own kids or grandkids Mm -hmm. in your own way. You don't always have to be thinking about the kind of commercial success of a story. You should write first for your, your reader and your reader should always be the child that's in your life or in your community or in your classroom that you think will connect with this story. And if you start there, then you're always going to feel successful and you're always going to feel proud of your work because it connected with that one reader and that's enough and that's good enough and that's success in and of itself. So I I also want to encourage people to not think that the Holy grail is just getting to a large publishing house. And that's the only way to feel good about your writing because that's absolutely not true. Um, But in my case, if I am pitching to a publishing house, I do need to think about the, um, their ability to sell this book to as many people as possible because they are in the book business. So, um, you know, that is a consideration. And in this case, um, we thought let's, let's keep buddy in school for this next title and think about what's kind of the next challenge for him, um, that could unfold at school. And so I really thought about that for a while. The irony is I wrote this story in the fall of 2019 before COVID before kids were pulled out of school, before so many families were uprooted and relocated and moved and all of that change of living behind masks and then taking masks off and all of the, um, you know, kind of uncertainty that happened over the last couple of years. Um, I wrote this story about making a new friend before all of that happened, but just thought, you know, what's something that's a universal experience for a child, it is being new. You're new all the time. Um, and that's, that is a universal experience that they have, whether they're 
walking into their own classroom and something has changed, whether they're going to a new grade and a new school year in September, whether their friend has moved, whether they've moved, whether they are trying a karate class for the first time or swim lesson for the first time, kids are doing new things constantly. As adults, we become less accustomed to doing new things, right? We, we sort of, ways. <laughs> yeah, we settle into the same old things that we know we're good at or that we know we enjoy. And we, we tend to not push ourselves out there into new territory as often as our children are. That's um, everything you just said is just, I'm going to keep it. The recording aside is such great advice and it's such a, a great path for you to be going on. I think what we're going to find in several years is that we have the same children who started out with Buddy's bedtime and kind of grew with him. So your readers are going to get a little bit older along with Buddy. And I know that um, my granddaughters loved Buddy's bedtime and the school one. And now they're at the age where they are making friends. So this is going to be a great addition to their their own library. So I, I can't wait for them to read it. Thank you. Um, did you always want to be a writer? Um, I think it's a it, it's not necessarily did I always want to be a writer, but was I always writing? And the answer is yes. I always, um, I've always felt the most comfortable expressing my thoughts on the page with words. Gotcha. Um, and that has always come naturally to me. I going back in time and thinking about the feedback I got on um, from my English teachers along the way or in high school, I probably should have majored in English or in creative writing in college. I didn't. I think I never really saw that writing could be um, my career. I always kind of went in the direction where I was in other types of jobs, but using writing in order to do that job. And it wasn't until I got to this moment in time in my life where I felt like, oh, I've got these little stories and I can really see a need for them in my own life, which means that there's probably a need for them in other people's too, um, that it just sort of all came together and clicked for me. Um, but I didn't identify myself as a writer until Buddy's Bedtime Battery was published. Did I feel like I could officially say I'm a writer without, you know, feeling like imposter syndrome? Well, I don't think that that's going to be the case, but, um, so why do you think picture books are so important and they continue to thrive and play such an important role in families and children and, um, and really bonding? I think it's because of the tactile experience of holding a story in your hand and really taking time with what's happening on the page and all of the opportunity there is with a young person or even a baby to look at a book together. And sure, you can read the words, but oftentimes, you know, it's, it's sometimes not what's happening with the words. It's what's happening on the page and the opportunity for discussion. Where do we find all of the green things on this page? You know, things that are sort of outside of the story that are all kind of teaching moments and learning moments at this period of time where, um, you know, little minds are so open to learning and to interacting and that quiet time you have together with a small person in your life, um, is, is invaluable when you can kind of sit there together, open a book, look at it together, point to things on the page, 
um, and the routine that comes with that, where, you know, we, we all have those experiences where <laughs> your child or your grandchild or your, you know, child you're caring for is attached to a certain book mm-hmm. for a period of time and you'll read it, you know, 10 times a day, sometimes even more. And there's some security in that, I think, in that repetition and in that routine that um, I don't know that you can replicate that with anything digital. It would be really hard to. I can I can think of one story in particular that I read to my son when he was very little. And just like you said, I, we had to read it every day and a couple times a day. But now he had to get a copy and he shares it with his own children. And that's kind of like the best compliment I think ever. So that's so nice. Yeah. And all those hours you put into reading it again and again, <laughs> rolling my eyes sometimes, but I did. <laughs> right. yeah, you have to do it. It's, it's just such a great connection with the children. So what books influenced you as a young reader? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, we read, um, I think we read a lot of Dr. Seuss in our household growing up and I enjoyed that. And the sound of my dad's voice, Mm -hmm. um, reading that's, I would say those are my strongest memories of reading stories with my dad were the Dr. Seuss books. And then, um, twas the night before Christmas is, Mm -hmm. are my strongest memories of him, you know, reading aloud to us. And he still does, uh, every year and over zoom the last couple of Christmases when we've had family members separated and friends separated, he puts on a Santa suit and zooms oh <laughs> Twas the night before Christmas <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, for everybody. And I always enjoyed reading. I've always been in book clubs, you know, ever since I was out of college, you know, community built in my young twenties by having a book club with friends wherever I was living at the time. Um, And I always have a stack of novels just next to my bed. I prefer to be reading a story than I do to be watching television before I go to sleep at night. So I'm behind on all of the popular shows everybody else is watching, (laughs) but um, I tend to kind of be, be buried in a book. My kids love Ferdinand. That's one of our favorites. Oh, oh yes. Um, and we have a puppy in our lives that we got this year named Bronco, who's a black golden doodle. And um, he reminds us of Ferdinand in the backyard smelling the flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a lot of you know fun memories back to the, the stories that we were reading with our own kids as well. Do you have a, a recent novel that you've read that you um, are recommending to everybody? Um, yes. I just read This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, who mm-hmm. is the owner of Books Are Magic. And it's it's a story about a teenager growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, just on the same block where my family lived for eight years. So I feel like reading the wow. story, I'm living in my old neighborhood. That's great. And it's um, a woman that's turning 40 and she sort of time travels back to herself at her 16th birthday. It's really great. But I think it was also, I connected to it because I know the neighborhood so well that I felt like I was back in my own stomping grounds. And then I'm reading a memoir called bookends by Zibby Owens, who is a fellow literary podcaster um, and got an early copy of bookends from Zibby. And I've been reading that. So I had, you know, fiction and memoir going on at the same time. 
You're my kind of reader, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I have Zibby's book on my TBR pile, too, so I can't wait to read it. It's really, really good. I just just sent her an email to to tell her that, yeah. It's awesome. Awesome. Beautifully written. So a, a little aside, you are like so talented and creative and such a great entrepreneur. We would, we have to talk about Boombox. Sure. It's just a great concept. And, um, I, I just can't imagine the joy it brings to people, and especially these days. We do, everybody needs so, so much of that, but to, can you tell about where it came from, what it is and. Sure. I'd be happy to thank you for the chance to talk about these different facets of my life. I appreciate it. Um, so boom boxes are memory boxes. They are not the boom box you or I remember from the eighties, but they're actually memory boxes that pack kind of a really deep emotional, um, punch. And the idea was born when my friends were turning 40 and my father was turning 70 and I started to make these homemade memory boxes. And the, the mission was simple, just to gather as many messages as I could track down from people in their life, from all chapters of their life. Kind of a this is your life collection of, of letters um, and photos. And to print it all and package it up inside a beautiful jewelry box or gift box. And so I was making these on my own with my friends from college. I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville and my friends are scattered all over the country. Um, so when our first, the first among us turned 40, this idea was among my college group of girlfriends, um, to make one for Amy and she was boombox number one. My dad turned 70 a month later. Um, after making 10 of these by myself and getting messages from everyone I could find over email, designing them, printing them onto cards I got at the card store and finding boxes. I just realized that there was more to this and that there should be a service that could make this collaborative gifting possible. So it's a collaborative memory box where you can use really simple technology to invite friends, family, in the case of a friend of mine, their wedding guests. I just made a wedding box for a friend of mine. And everyone just clicks the link and writes their memory and uploads a photo. And then my team designs all of that onto really beautiful cardstock inside of a lacquer box. And so we have eight colors to choose from in the collection. So there's a box for sort of every person's unique style or, you know, the, the look or feel of your home, whether you're into blue or silver, we kind of have a box for that. Um, and you can monogram the lid or you can put your corporate logo on the lid. We do a lot of retirement gifting, um, for, uh, work teams and for kind of like executives, et cetera, um, at different companies. And, um, you end up with this really beautiful time capsule where you can kind of hold your life story in your hands card by card. Um, so we are close to 10,000 boom boxes, um, that have been, created and delivered off of that idea of just one box for my best friend's 40th birthday. Um, so it's been a real labor of love. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and one of the things we focus on here on this podcast is storytelling, but this is like the ultimate storytelling, the collaborative storytelling of a life. And as told by so many different people, it's, it's just a gorgeous concept. And how do people find out more about that? Sure. Thank you. Um, they can go to boomboxgifts.com. Got it. So that's boombox, B-O-O-M-B-O-X, gifts, G-I-F-T-S.com. 
Um, and you can also, if you just Google Christina Geist memory box, Christina Geist boom box or boom box gift or boom box memory box, you will find it. Um, you can also follow me on social media at Christina Sharkey Geist. My maiden name is Sharkey. And you'll always find the links to all of all my stuff out there in the world. Good, because people will want to know what's coming and what, what else you're doing. And um, I encourage people to go because there's a lot more to Christina Geist than we've been able to cover here. Trust <laughs> me, <laughs> there's a lot more. Um, Christina, it's been so wonderful talking to you. The book is out this week, and I encourage every parent and grandparent to get their hands on a copy. It's been wonderful to see you. Thank you so much, Ron, and thank you to all of the listeners. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in today. Be sure to check out our bookshop.org page where you can purchase all of Christina's books, along with the books of all of our past guests at a discount, while at the same time helping out independent bookstores. On behalf of Mary Kay, Patty, Kristen, and Christy, thank you for tuning in. Join us next week for another all-new episode. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.